I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Nick Lobel Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics, an organization that provides healthcare relief to victims of natural disasters around the world. Nick and his colleagues started NYC Medics in 2005 in response to the earthquakes in Pakistan. Welcome. Thanks. Prior to your paramedic work, you were a theater production manager. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I went to college and majored in theater and economics. And by the way, in college, I became an EMT, which is what I am now. And I um, spent the first 10 years of my career managing Broadway shows. I was the production manager for The Lion King. I was the manager for Riverdance, um, the musical Annie on the Road. That was really what I used to do. I really enjoyed moving people from place to place, you know, which would be the actors and the stagehands and the the kids and the dogs in some cases. And how did you go from moving lion costumes to moving sutures around the world? Well, I was 9-11, so to speak. Um, I was living in New York and found myself working downtown um, with the relief effort for some time, and that made a big impact on me. And I think that it really put my career in perspective, and I had to ask myself some tough questions about why I was doing what I was doing. Hmm. And then you became an ambulance driver. I did. I took this EMT certification, and I began driving um, and working as an, and driving an ambulance and working as an EMT in New York. You would meet people from every borough of the city and in small houses and large mansions, and you know, you'd meet them in a time where they were a little vulnerable and you were able to make them feel comfortable. I feel like in some ways being sick is the great equalizer. We're all sick at one time or another and we all have accidents. And it brings out a different part of everyone. People respond in all different kinds of ways. You'd find people that would be nasty to you on the subway, but once they're in trouble and you're there to help them, they're your best friend. Mm -hmm. And maybe they would never talk to me if I was sitting across from them, you know, at a restaurant. But once I was there to take care of them, they, you know, they would be so grateful. And, and that was very addictive almost to be able to help people like that. How long were you driving an ambulance before you started to do hands-on relief work? About, about two years. And then Hurricane Katrina happens, and you went down as, uh, under a FEMA contract. How long after Hurricane Katrina hit did you go down to this site? We wanted to leave the morning after the hurricane had passed, and we waited, and we waited. It took about a week before we had the final approval to get on the road to head down there. The idea for NYC Medics, or New York City Medics, uh, came after Hurricane, hurricane Katrina, kind of accidentally, uh, after the earthquake in Pakistan. How did you first hear about the earthquake in Pakistan? I heard about the earthquake, I think, the way a lot of people heard about it. I um, read it in the New York Times and heard the articles on the BBC. I think uh, a lot of people were surprised by this and surprised by hearing about uh, more natural disasters. But something else surprised us even more after the earthquake hit is that after a few days, we didn't hear it in the news anymore. It mm. seemed to slip away. And I think that was frightening to a lot of us as emergency workers, knowing that the, the problems, anything reported initially as so catastrophic, could somehow, you know, slip away into oblivion almost. I think that, I guess, the country had a certain degree of disaster fatigue at that point. And there was a non-government organization or an NGO that contacted you and said, will you go to Pakistan and help? 
How did that happen? I got a call from a friend who was actually a paramedic working down in Baton Rouge with us. And he asked if I knew any other paramedics that were interested in traveling to Pakistan to work and support the medical relief effort. I had never been to Pakistan. So I had um, offered to go and contact some other paramedics so that we could put together a team to travel with this NGO. The NGO actually never was able to pull together that team to go. And so we were left with a group of people who had suddenly gotten very enthused about going and helping, and then they didn't have an avenue with which to do it. How many people are we talking about at this point when you were gathering a team? Initially, it was just 10 people because we thought we were going to be part of a larger organization. And then for us to hear that we couldn't go was almost disappointing. Of those 10 people, how many were male and how many female? We had, of them, there were two, we brought two women in our 13-member team, which is what the final number was when we, when we left for Pakistan. Mm. Now, you also sought help from the World Health Organization, the WHO. Did they agree to help you? We, they did, initially. The WHO was going to make us contractors, and we were going to f- work under their auspices in Pakistan. And that ended up taking, from a bureaucratic perspective, too long. So that never happened? That never happened. So we still would be waiting for the WHO contractor status today. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nick Lobel-Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics, a group of healthcare workers that provides disaster relief to victims around the world. In a way, maybe it's helpful that you did become a WHO contractor or that this NGO, uh, this or, uh, this other organization fell through because you might not have had the catalyst to then start NYC Medics yourself. Right. Um, there are so many things that put us in, in an unusual context to, to pull this organization together. We um, Shortly thereafter, we, we had given up. We had all but given up, and we heard from another organization who thought they could help us, which was Islamic Relief. They without with knowing very little about us, without us even having a, a bona fide organization, um, went and purchased um, airline tickets for us. And within a few days, we were on our way. Wow. So that's for about 15 people. That's about fifteen to $20,000 that they gave you for, for airline tickets. Pakistani Airlines allowed you to transport your your materials or your baggage for free. How Just how much baggage did you have? We had a, one large pallet, which was over a metric ton. Now, remember, when you go to help in a disaster situation, you can't be beholden to anyone or anything in any way because you're there to help, and you have to be one other ingredient that is added that doesn't require any support whatsoever. That means water. That means food. In this case, we actually brought our own water. We brought 169 gallons of water from New York to Pakistan, which seems like an impossible feat. Who was the water supplier? It was Fiji Water, and they do a lot of other work in the world that's just fantastic. And the joke would be we were trying to explain when we finally got to Kashmir to the um, Pakistani soldiers that we were working with that this water had come from all the way in the islands of Fiji, all the way to some port in the West Coast, to New York, and now all the way to Pakistan. (gasps) What else did you bring other than 170 gallons of water? We brought water. We brought food from a company called Tasty Bite, which is where they produce the Indian foods that you'd find in the supermarket shelf that you could boil in a bag. Um, We brought lighting. We brought batteries. We brought flashlights. We brought the medical equipment that we could borrow from hospitals. How about in your personal sack? What did Nick bring? 
it was like going for a really long camping trip where the where it would be extremely extremely cold at night and very very warm during the day so we had i had a sleeping bag i had um some another physician had been able to appropriate lots of inhalers so i brought those little asthma inhalers that you'd have for your kid um why do you have asthma I didn't, but we knew that there were going to be a lot of children that had upper respiratory illnesses, and we actually gave out all of those inhalers to people. This was probably far from your mind, but just in your personal moments, when you had a moment to kind of reflect, did you bring a book or any music with you? I brought I brought my iPod, and I, I brought a copy of the Quran, which I had from college, which I had never read, read before. But the truth, truth be told, I didn't. There wasn't really any free time to do any pleasure reading or music listening. Mm-hmm. We were working most of the day, and at night we were either sleeping for, you know, any hours that we could. One supply that you were missing was a satellite phone when you arrived in Pakistan, right. and finally, when you got to this camp in Kashmir, uh, you ran into a sixty minutes camera crew. And there was a little quid pro quo there. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, what happened was we were supposed to be in one part of the country. We were dropped in the wrong place. We were dropped in a town that was 30 miles from the place we were supposed to be. And remember, there were no roads at this point because all the roads had been destroyed by this earthquake. So we found ourselves without the sat phone that we were supposed to have upon arrival. So we had no way to call home. We had no way to call the embassy if something was wrong. And um, we just continued to work with the people that were there, which was the Pakistani military. A few days later, after us, after we had continued to work like this, we saw some Western-appearing people on the helicopter pad when we were loading a patient into a helicopter. It just so turned out that it was a producer from 60 Minutes, and they had just been taking some footage, and we sort of bumped into each other unexpectedly. We taped a piece with them, with the 60 Minutes crew, and some more people came to interview us. And at the end of the piece, they wanted us to be sure that we wouldn't speak about this story, which we didn't even consider to be a story. We just considered it to be what we were doing with any with any other news crews. There were no news crews for <laughs> hundreds of miles. I couldn't imagine. We were so in the middle of nowhere that we would never want to tell any. We would never have the ability to tell anyone anything. But in exchange for promising that we would not discuss this with anyone, we convinced the CBS crew to give us their CBS sat phone, and they did. So it trading exclusivity for a satellite phone. It was a great deal, and we benefited from it, and also benefiting from it were all of these Pakistani military men who had not been home since the earthquake, and so we let them use CBS's dime to call their families and tell them they were okay. Oh, so nice. Now, how did you end up in the wrong place? You said, who, who, by the way, transported you to that wrong place? The WHO gave us a, a, a GPS latitude and longitude and said, this is where there's the medical camp where you need to be. And um, when we arrived at the location that he told us we were going to, which they called, they had named all of the places, they named this Vermont Hospital, apparently, and um, and it was nothing like Vermont, I <laughs> assure you. Um, we were so happy that he had dropped us off there. We gave him the bottle of vodka that we had purchased at the duty free, which is a quite a, a thing to provide someone with in the, an Islamic country. Sure. Um, the helicopter took off, and we began to meet the military, the Pakistani military, that were on the ground, and they told us that we were in the complete wrong place. Mm. So as we looked up, we realized the helicopter was. Far too away to come back. So, 
Now, when you say the wrong place, does it did it really matter? Uh, because these were also earthquake victims. So, what was the right place, so called? You know, as we learned, where we were dropped off was precisely the right place because through this small accident, we ended up being the most forward deployed medical team in this valley, the Jhelum Valley. Mm-hmm. So we reached people that had still 22 days after the earthquake had still not seen any medical care. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about major surgeries. These are people that had small injuries to their hands or to their head that um, just because of the lack of basic medical care, treatment, cleaning wounds, antibiotic administration, were dying mm. and were very sick and people and small children that were dehydrated. So we were in a really fantastic position to help people. I'm Jessica Harris and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nick Lobel Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics. We'll hear more from Nick coming up. I'm Jessica Harris and this is From Scratch. My guest is Nick Lobel Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics, an organization that provides health care relief to victims of natural disasters around the world. Nick and his colleagues started NYC Medics in 2005 in response to the earthquake in Pakistan. Now, you mentioned that right after the initial earthquake that 25,000 people died, but that 75,000 people died later due to lack of medical supplies, even as simple as antibacterial ointment. Yeah, I think that, I th- and those are estimates. I don't, what basically I think the interesting part here is that so many people, thousands of people died that first day. And in the weeks after the earthquake, there was a whole nother second death toll that began to rise. And it's completely understandable when, in a, when a country's entire health infrastructure is ripped apart like that. People have nowhere to go. There's no hospitals. How were you received? We were received as guests. And in an Islamic country, no one could wish for any other type of welcome from, from the people. It was, it was almost embarrassing how well we were treated And we felt guilty all too often because people were really willing to give us whatever they would. The example would be if if someone had a chicken that was laying eggs for their family, they would want to cook that chicken for you. And it's it's touching because you know that that is their source of of food and it's Mm -hmm. so important to them. Now, you've been to Pakistan twice. The first time you were in Kashmir. And the second time you're in the northwest frontier province, where there's known to be some terrorist activity. And I'm wondering if you ever felt that your security was threatened, despite your being received with open arms by the locals. We always felt so comfortable. We were right there during the whole um, debacle that took place with the um, cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. So there would even be protests at certain times on a Friday. However, we would see the people that would march by protesting would wave to us as they were marching by. So they were cognizant of the fact that we were there and we felt separate from these concerns that people may have had with other people in the world. There was a Mujahideen uh, training camp on the other side of the mountain where you were in the northwest frontier province. These are groups of people who might have terrorist connections. Were you aware that there was a training camp and did that at all um, did you at all worry about your security? It was pretty scary when we found out about that. We didn't know about it until we were actually leaving. We found out at the end that there was this Mujahideen camp, which apparently, as we, it was explained to us, these people were not plotting attacks 
outside in the world, but they were um, just preparing or um, training to protect what they considered their land in, in a border dispute they have with India. But at the same time, having any, any type of a militant group that was somewhat frightening to us. However, we were assured that through the whole time we were there, they knew that we were operating on the other side of the mountain, so to speak, and they were apparently okay with that. People knew that you were American, but you weren't necessarily holding an American flag or anything like that, so you were kind of nation agnostic to some degree. Right. We tried to be. It was, it was pr- probably quite difficult to, to hide that. People that came to be treated by us knew who we were, but um, we tried to to keep our mandate in somewhat of an international context. Now, while you were in Pakistan, Bush came through, and Bush wanted to meet with you, and you declined. How come? That was a tough decision because um, at the time, there was a real security um, consciousness there, obviously. And while we were there, like like you said, we were trying to keep a somewhat low profile. Everything had been going very well, but we didn't want to um, make waves. And um, the problem was, if we were to agree to meet with this person, we would have had to disclose the area which we were working in publicly in a, in a major newspaper. And um, as everyone knows, Bush is not very well liked in Pakistan at all. And um, I certainly wouldn't want to have a photo of myself with him shaking his hand and and being affiliated with that. And I think that would take away from what we were there to do, because what we what we were we were in Pakistan, not with a political agenda Um, and a politician is. And I think that's really what what it came down to. We wanted to keep our independence. You worked alongside the Pakistani army a little bit, and one of your colleagues, Steve Muth, said that Pakistani soldiers are professional and their work is exemplary, and that the people of Pakistan should be proud of their military. Um, I, I was I was curious about this because the role of the military in Pakistani society um, is not unequivocally a positive one. Uh, they are ubiquitous in Pakistan. There's a huge bureaucracy, and they really control almost every facet of society. Uh, and Musharraf, the prime minister, came in with a military coup overthrowing the former, the former prime minister. And so there's a real kind of air of menace and disapproval of the military. Why was there this um, approval on the part of you guys or on the part of your colleague towards the military? Yeah, I think that there's there may be a – and I'm not a, a real expert on um, Pakistani politics. But what I can tell you is that there's there seems to be two levels of the military, and I'm sure Steve would agree with this. There's the, there is a bureaucratic upper level of military management. And I think that is the area that may be more associated with the government and the power structure. Then there is a more development-related part of the military there. The mil- this military in much of the country is reflective of its citizenry. Do they wear a uniform? They do wear uniforms. And it's funny, actually, when they're doing work, they have um, these sort of track suits that they wear. And it seems like they're all on a soccer team of sorts. So <laughs> Do they carry weapons? They don't necessarily carry weapons. Um, there is a very large contingent of the military, which is the equivalent of our Army Corps of Engineers. They were making roads the day after the earthquake, and we would hear in the mornings, we would hear explosions, and we would be worried at first. But that was the military bombing out, not bombing, but using the charges to create to open up the roads again. Incidentally, going back to this security question, 
if a member of the Mujahideen training camp or if there was an al-Qaeda training camp near you, if one of those members had come to you to, to be treated, would you have treated them? We wouldn't have known if they were a member. And the, Had you known they were a member? Had I known they were a member, the truth is we would have we have to treat people based on need. And it, to be an international organization and to be able to be effective in what you do, you need to really accept people for who they are. Um, we wouldn't treat people that were threatening our our workers. We wouldn't people be treating people that were threatening our patients. Um, yeah. But um, if someone comes to us with their hat in their hand or in, in an inappropriate manner who's needing treatment, um, it's, it's, it's pretty much an accepted international doctrine that it's appropriate to treat them. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nick Lobel Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics, a group of healthcare workers that provides disaster relief to victims around the world. NYC Medics was started in 2005 after the Pakistani earthquake, which claimed over 100,000 lives. Nick worked as a theatrical production manager prior to his work in healthcare. I want to go back to the resource question. How long were you in Pakistan the first time you were there? The first time we were in Pakistan, we were there for just over two weeks. And the reason you left was a resource issue. Sure. We, were, we weren't even an organization yet. We had nothing other than what we had brought with us. And we knew, not only had people all taken off work with taken unpaid leave off of their jobs, you know, this was not very unplanned, but also we knew we would eventually run out of water and we would run out of food. When we finally did leave, we were able to hand off this location of treatment to um, larger organizations like, in one case, the Pakistani Physicians of North America came in. They took over our camp. So you're a mobile unit that is quite nimble because of your small size. So you can get in quickly and get out quickly, and you kind of fill the space for larger organizations that require more time for coordination. Precisely. There are a lot of organizations, major organizations like Doctors Without Borders, that have all of the resources, the tools, and the talent to provide this type of care, not to mention the United Nations. However, when a disaster happens, there's often a gap that we found that exists between the search and rescue phase where people are literally there trying to find people in the rubble and then the reconstruction phase where the larger organizations can come in and provide, you know, set up programs and really help people in a long-term context. I want to talk about gender roles. Cultural tradition causes a separation between men and women in places like Pakistan. What were some instances where you faced a gender issue firsthand? We faced a lot of issues there, and I think we we also um, didn't find what we expected. When we were in Kashmir the first time, right after the earthquake, we found w- not all women um, were, um, were completely covered. Um, Kashmir, in some places, is more liberal in that context, which is surprising to many. Still, male doctors were touching, uh, you know, naked females. How was that received? We found that that women were uh, comfortable being treated by men in an uh, in an emergency context. We ha- we brought two female practitioners the first time, and the second time our teams were made up almost fifty percent of women, um, and that was very helpful. And I also found that in that part of the world, the social norms might not support women being treated for all all their needs in an emergency in the same way that that men would be treated and that was disturbing to me What's also ex- finding the finding the right supplies like for example 
um, we had two people, there were two people in our camp that were working in a health clinic, and they were unable to obtain pregnancy tests from the pharmacist because the pharmacist accused them, the local Pakistani women, of running a brothel. And that's disturbing, where to, a woman should have the right to know if she's pregnant. Now, there was a, a Pakistani midwife, uh, Nigat, who was with you. What role did she play? She's actually the woman who, has, who provides this example of wanting to go into town to provide these pregnancy test strips or to procure these pregnancy test strips. We, um, the American males, would go into town to the pharmacies to purchase these items. And they were, she had been turned away when she went to make those purchases. How about psychology? The, the, the field of psychology is not accepted in Pakistan. Uh, it's shunned upon, even prohibited. Did you find circumstances in which you felt people needed psychological help but weren't able to get it? Absolutely. Well, after a disaster, everyone is living in crisis. People were, be, were coming for treatment but we'd find children that couldn't speak. And we weren't sure if they had a physical problem, and then we, we later realized that they were shocked out of, out of communication. There were kids that were afraid to be touched by anyone, men, women, even their own parents. And they, we thought at first that there might be a neurological issue, that they had some type of a head injury, but that wasn't the case. The case was that you know, they had witnessed possibly the death of their entire family. But like you said, psychology and, um, and um, psychotherapy is not a practice that's accepted in Pakistan. I think um, it's probably more appropriate to sp- for someone to speak with their religious leaders, which can be a form of psychotherapy. I think when the second time we came, we almost brought a contingent of psychologists. So you're still willing to do this despite the uh, cultural tradition which supports otherwise? Yeah, I think a lot of international medicine has these challenges of trying to provide, well, we were always endeavoring to provide what we would consider first world medicine in a third world context. And that's a challenge. When you were in Pakistan, how much did it remind you of Katrina? I feel in Katrina, we had lots of resources and a lack of ability to mobilize those resources. And in Pakistan, we had a huge desire to mobilize. If we needed some support from anyone in the town, from the military, we had it. If we needed to go hiking through the mountains, the next morning we found a a whole regiment of mules to carry all of our stuff. When the mules couldn't go any further, there were men that would come. Not only the military men would take all of our bags off of the mules, but just people from the village were carrying everything we had. So what we had in Pakistan was we had lots of mobilization, but we didn't have the resources. Very, very interesting. So it is an interesting juxtaposition. Um, And if just given the resources there, you'd be amazed at what these people could accomplish. They were so determined and tough. How about at night? I know that you were, you know, working around the clock. Did you have enough lighting to continue work into the night? That's a really good point. We, the first time we were there, we had a very small generator, but we had very little fuel. So we couldn't run our operations. We found the Pakistani people would basically be ready to end their day when the sun went down. As a result, they were everyone was up as soon as the sun was even remotely in the sky. And it was a huge shift for us, you know, to operate, to get up at four or five in the morning. But people in that part of the world live by this sun, and it gave us a new appreciation for 
the light that we have. And has that affected your own circadian rhythms or your own behavior now when you're back in New York? It has a little. I find myself waking up a little earlier in the morning. But it was interesting. And the second time we were in Pakistan, we had more power. We had generators. We had the ability to purchase fuel. So we were one of the few relief operations that could remain and have a 24-hour emergency room. There was a, a woman that, that was in a car accident. And she was brought in. The whole, the whole family was brought into um, our emergency room in the middle of the night. Her son was brought in with her. He was not injured. And someone gave him a, a lollipop. And it was a mango lollipop. And I remember just watching this child in horror, watching his mother on, on what we would have as sort of an operating or treatment table. And all he had to comfort himself was this lollipop. And it was very sad. It's just sad when there's a car accident in Pakistan. There could be a car accident anywhere in the world. The difference there is that there's no lights on the road. There's no Their headlights may not work. The driver may have been up for two days because they had to work so hard. Remembering that car accidents happen there for all sorts of reasons is something I don't forget. How does choice play a role in your treatment of some of your patients in the field? In international relief, all too often, unfortunately, people are treated at the direction of and in the style and manner of the people that choose to provide the care. There were times where people would want to be given medications and it wasn't medically appropriate for them. And in that case, the choice is a difficult one where we want to treat them in the context which they're interested. We also feel the responsibility as a practitioner not to give them a pain medication when we feel that that pain medication could be harmful to them. And that's, that's a place where the choice can't necessarily rest with the patient. How did people treat your leaving Pakistan? That was tough. It was, it was very difficult. As the reconstruction phase in any country happens, people do go home. And that's an important part of the process because more than being wanting to be treated by us, the people there really want to be able to take care of themselves and they should have the rights and resources to do that. I've heard that the Kashmir valleys are the yeah. most beautiful sites of nature in the world. Yeah. Does that stay with you at all? I do. I um. Even the, even the picture on my cell phone when I turn it on all the time is, is a picture of, of, the, of the valley there. And I, I'll nev- those, those images will never leave my head. They're just in, they're indelible. What are some specific moments or instances that you remember that come up in your daily life when you're brushing your teeth or driving your car? I think about a child that um, was about five years old and... Um, he had lost a portion of his leg, and his father needed to carry him everywhere. And I remember just helping, and I cleaned the wound and and um, rebandaged it, rebandaged the you know the portion of the leg that remained that had not been amputated. I think a lot about how tough it is to live in Kashmir, and these people will walk for several miles to get anywhere. And I think of how difficult it's going to be for him as he continues to grow up and support his family when he can't walk because he only has one leg. And he's still there, and I'll probably never meet him again. Do you care to meet him again? I would love to. I, I can't even remember his name. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. My guest has been Nick Lobel Weiss, co-founder of NYC Medics. Coming up, we'll meet Donna Rubin and Jennifer Lobo, co-founders of Bikram Yoga NYC, a chain of hot yoga studios with temperatures at roughly 100 degrees. 
I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. 